Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. We're going to be using this meditation in order to train the mind towards enlightenment or this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. As we get ready to dive into breathing mindfulness meditation, I would like to first take some time at the beginning of our class session to discuss some things in a little bit more detail than we've had in the past, just kind of allocating some time here to talk just a little bit about the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots in the three fires, which are essentially all the same things. And then we're going to be spending some time really discussing right speech. One of the things that I notice is that as human beings, we can actually cause a lot of harm with our speech or we can do a lot of good with our speech. So I think it's important in terms of the Eightfold Path, which we explored last week, to really dive into this one particular step, right speech, because by learning what the Buddha taught us about right speech and improving our speech, we can really see our personal and professional relationships blossom and bring all types of benefits to our practice. So I thought we would spend some time there today discussing right speech. So as we get ready for breathing mindfulness meditation, let's first talk about the three poisons, the three unwholesome roots, or the three fires. It's important to understand these as it relates to meditation because it helps us to understand why we're doing what we're doing in meditation. There's three problems that Gautama Buddha discovered with the mind, craving, anger, and ignorance, or also known as greed, hatred, and delusion. These three poisons or three unwholesome roots, three fires, are essentially what causes the mind to be unenlightened. And it's not until we fully extinguish these three poisons that the mind can actually attain enlightenment. We need to extinguish these three poisons as well as realize non-self and dissolve the ego. Through doing this, the mind will actually then become enlightened gradually over time through learning and practicing. So if we're going to extinguish these three poisons as part of our practice towards enlightenment or towards Nibbana, it's important to understand what these three poisons are and how they cause complications in our life and what the actual remedies are for these three poisons. The primary problem that Gautama Buddha discovered is the first poison, the craving or greed. This is the mind's tendency to hold on. 
that the mind holds on to things and craves permanence. The mind has a really difficult time to just let go. Also in this poison of craving, we understand that the mind is always seeking. It's always looking outside of itself for external pleasures. It's always looking for satisfaction outside of itself. It wants a new car. It wants more income. It wants more friends. It wants to be popular. It wants erroneous things, clothes, shoes. The mind just craves and craves and craves and craves and grasps and tries to latch on to these things, relationships, situations. And because the mind holds on so tightly, it causes itself to be discontent. This goes into the Four Noble Truths about how we cause our own discontent mind. And the way that we eliminate this primary problem that the Buddha discovered that causes discontentness of mind is through breathing mindfulness meditation. It's through breathing mindfulness meditation that we train the mind to just let go. And by training the mind to let go over multiple, multiple sessions, then we use that as beneficial training in daily life so that when something happens to us that is displeasing, the mind can just let go. So if we lose that job that we were really hoping for or that we've been in for a long time and we lose it because of the economy or COVID-19 or our company is downsizing or for whatever reason, we don't just feel so miserable and so sad and so angered or frustrated, we can just let it go and recognize that it's impermanent and that we need to move on with our life and get a new job. Or if we're in a relationship and a relationship turns to the point where we've decided to end the relationship for any number of reasons, the mind will oftentimes hold on. This is the craving. This is the grasping. This is the holding. This is that primary problem that the Buddha discovered that causes us discontentedness. And when that relationship ends and the mind holds on craving permanence, that's when we become sad or lonely or bored or frustrated or angry, feel maybe guilty or shameful or fearful that we've now lost a partner and maybe we're alone. And it's because of this mental longing with a strong eagerness. It's because of the mind's outward searching, longing and craving, having this strong eagerness to hold on to things. And by training the mind away from that, to be able to let go, then the mind can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it recognizes the impermanent nature of things like jobs, relationships, incomes, living situations, and all of the different things that are going to come in and out of our life, we can just learn to let them go if that's what needs to happen. But it's when the mind holds on that it causes itself to be discontent. And the beauty in this is that because we cause our own discontent mind, we can actually eliminate it as well. We're actually the ones, because of this craving, desire, attachment, we're the ones who are actually causing the sadness. We are causing the guilt and the shame and the fear. We are actually causing the frustration, the irritation, the annoyance. We are causing the boredom, the loneliness, the shyness. All of these discontent feelings 
are all being caused by us. And that's why we can use the antidote that Gautama Buddha gave us, which is breathing mindfulness meditation as a way to train the mind away from always grasping and holding on. And we can train it to eliminate this tendency in the unenlightened mind and move the mind closer and closer to the enlightened mind. And this is what we're going to be doing with breathing mindfulness meditation. Well, if we get the object of our affection with, through our craving in the unenlightened state, if we get that object of affection, we might feel so happy and so joyful and so elated. But then when it's gone, that's when the sadness and the despair and frustration comes in. Or if we have this longing for something and we just keep longing and longing with this strong eagerness and we don't acquire it, that's when the mind becomes discontent. And through this discontentness that we experience, the mind then might experience the second poison, which is the hatred or anger. It's also called ill will when we talk about it as one of the fetters. It's this kind of hostility or aggression that we have towards other beings. We look out in kind of fearful ways and we kind of become hostile and aggressive. We also become frustrated and irritated and annoyed at others. And we oftentimes put up walls between us and other people and it inhibits us from experiencing a wonderful life where we can enjoy and be peaceful in all situations and all relationships. We tend to have people in our lives that we kind of avoid. It could be family, it could be certain friends from the past, it could be certain people that we feel like we just don't get along with because maybe they have a different opinion than us or maybe we don't like something about them and we, we have this dislike towards other people rather than just being pleasant and loving and kind and compassionate to all beings, we find ways that our mind kind of doesn't like this person. Maybe they just have the same name as us. Sometimes walking into a room and knowing someone has the same name as us can create hostility. They haven't done anything to us, but they just happen to have the same name. Or maybe they have the same shirt as us or the same clothes. They haven't done anything. It's just that our mind wants this permanence and we have this craving for uniqueness. And when we see that other people are maybe wearing the same clothes or have the same hairstyle as us or have the same name, it bothers the mind and the mind becomes hostile. Or if somebody says something that's either slightly displeasing or maybe majorly displeasing, or they do something that we don't particularly like. Rather than just seeing this as a function of their own mind and kind of letting it go, our mind tends to hold on to it and creates this ill will, this hatred, this anger, this hostility towards others. And then we can't be peaceful. And we find ourselves oftentimes in trouble where we might argue or be frustrated, or be irritated, or we have trouble working with certain people, or we have trouble just sitting around a table and being pleasant with people, and being just average people who are just talking and getting along and 
yes, we can have different ideas and different opinions, but that doesn't mean we have to be hostile or angry with each other. And because of this, we oftentimes speak in unhelpful ways. We speak aggressively. We speak hostile to each other. And that's why today we're going to really dive into this third step of the Eightfold Path, which is right speech. So we'll get to that in a moment. And then this third poison, which is really the reason why we stay in the unenlightened state, even though the primary problem is craving, and even though we produce this hatred or anger, hostility, frustration, annoyance towards other people, and we kind of wall people off, it's really this third poison that is keeping us in the unenlightened state. It's called ignorance or delusion. I actually don't use these words from my own vocabulary. These are what other people kind of translate this third poison that the Buddha was talking about. I don't feel he really used the word ignorance because this is kind of derogatory in referring to another person. I feel the meaning of what he was describing is more like unknowing of true reality. Essentially, what this third poison is, is this is the mind being unaware, unaware of these teachings in which to train the mind that it's causing its own discontentness. For example, before getting exposure to these teachings, most of us go around thinking that when we get angry or frustrated, somebody else caused it, that somebody else made us angry. And we may actually be more angry at them because we say that they're making us angry or they're making us frustrated or because somebody didn't come see me, they're the ones who made me feel lonely, right? And we tend to blame other people for our problems. But it's not until you start working on gaining an understanding of the Buddhist teachings and eradicating this third poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality that you start awakening the mind with wisdom to realize through the Four Noble Truths that we are actually causing our own discontent mind because of this craving. We're the ones who are doing it, that we are actually causing our own discontent mind and we can eliminate it. But it's only through learning Gautama Buddha's teachings and practicing them, seeing that they're truth, not believing them, but seeing that they're truth, that the mind slowly, gradually awakens through this wisdom of the Buddha to eliminate this third poison. And the Four Noble Truths are just one teaching that helps to gain wisdom through learning and observing those teachings in practice you can start to gradually awaken the mind and you can build what's called right view by learning and practicing the Four Noble Truths. And then as you learn more in subsequent sessions or reading or spending time with teachers, you learn about the Eightfold Path and you learn about the five precepts and you learn about the three poisons. You learn about the natural law of Gamma. You learn about the three universal truths you learn about various teachings as part of this body of knowledge that Gautama Buddha provided 2,500 years ago that the more you learn it and you see it as wisdom and you understand it through independently practicing the teachings, you see the truth in those teachings, the mind then eradicates 
this delusion, ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, because through the Buddha's awakening, he provided teachings that will also lead to your awakening as well. His teachings, because he discovered them on his own, and they're very clear, very concise, very direct from an actual Buddha, through learning his teachings, you can gain wisdom. And by applying them in practice, you then gradually train the mind to eliminate all three of these poisons. So each of these three poisons have antidotes. The poison of craving or greed, the antidote is breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. Generosity is kind of freely giving without any expectation of anything in return. By doing that, then the mind is trained not to be so selfish and hold on to resources and wealth and supplies and things that we accumulate. So rather than just accumulating these things for selfish reasons, you can train the mind to let go so that it doesn't have that craving, that desire, attachment, that strong eagerness to hold on, that longing. You can train it with generosity and by being generous to people. So breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity are the two antidotes that we practice in order to eliminate this craving. With hatred or anger or ill will, we practice loving kindness meditation to train the mind to cultivate loving kindness in the mind. So see, with breathing mindfulness meditation, we're actively training the mind in an independent, purposeful meditation session to eliminate craving from the mind. But when we move into loving kindness meditation, we're actually actively cultivating loving kindness or active goodwill into the mind. That's what meditation is, is it's an active, independent, purposeful, dedicated training session where we're either eliminating certain qualities or we're cultivating certain qualities. And by cultivating loving kindness in meditation to eradicate this poison of hatred or anger or ill will, this hostility, then by cultivating it in meditation, we can then practice it in daily life. We practice this active goodwill towards ourself to help eliminate any negative self-talk. And then we work to cultivate that in the mind for other beings. And then we become a more loving, more caring, more polite, more respectful, who then can be peaceful around all beings. Because remember this poison of hatred or anger or ill will, we kind of wall people off. And the mind kind of holds on to this darkness and this hostility. But by cultivating in meditation this active goodwill towards all beings and doing that in an active, dedicated, purposeful training session with meditation, we can then move that into daily life by practicing active goodwill towards all beings in all situations. And of course, it's a slow progression. Right? If there's certain people in your life that you do have hostility for, you do have anger for, it's not going to be an instant quick fix. And that's why a dedicated, consistent meditation practice is important. That every day you're dedicating time to practicing meditation to eliminate 
this craving with breathing mindfulness meditation and cultivating this active goodwill towards all beings or loving kindness so that then in daily life we can practice non-attachment where we're not craving and grasping and holding on to things and we can practice loving kindness or active goodwill towards all beings and through doing this we will slowly 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 eradicate this craving and anger and through learning the teachings of Gautama Buddha and putting them into practice you're then slowly observing the truth for yourself about how these teachings and practices work to train the mind so you're independently verifying the truth for yourself you're not believing what I say you're not believing what I write in a book you're not believing what you see in the teachings you're actively practicing them in daily life so that you can see that they're actually working to move the mind from anger and hostility to irritation to annoyance to a slight dislike to more peaceful and by doing this you gain wisdom that's the antidote for this third poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality through learning and practicing the teachings whether you do that in a book or video or podcast or taking quizzes or asking questions to your teacher online classes a private discussion with your teacher all these various ways that i make available for students to learn the teachings by learning and practicing them you will see the truth for yourself and the mind will gain this wisdom and it's this wisdom that the mind now starts to function through differently that rather than holding on to this thought this negative thought with this wisdom of how the mind functions you will be more aptly able to see the problem that it's causing your sadness and through this training that you implement with breathing mindfulness meditation you will be more aptly able to let that go and then when you're in a situation where you feel hatred or anger you will see that as coming from your own mind and you will see that that's creating hostility and that's not beneficial for you in your life and then you will kick in and this wisdom will kick in that you need to practice loving kindness or active goodwill towards other beings so it's this wisdom of learning the teachings and practicing the teachings that will slowly eradicate this delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality to then move through and start to eliminate these other poisons of craving and hatred or anger or ill will and it's in these three poisons that once you eradicate them and you realize non-self and eliminate the ego that the mind can then be peaceful calm serene and content with joy in the enlightened mind state so before we move on any further in our talk let's pause here and see if there's any questions on the three poisons or the antidotes to the three poisons hi david no questions on either of those topics at the moment okay so we'll move on into the next thing that i had prepared which is discussing right speech right speech is really important to understand because when the mind is affected by this craving this outward seeking this searching this longing and strong eagerness to get things 
When it doesn't get what it wants, it oftentimes becomes hostile and it starts talking aggressively. Or if it gets what it wants and then later it loses it, then oftentimes the mind will once again start talking aggressively or hostile. Or even in just everyday life, we oftentimes will do things that are problematic for us. If we talk in ways and we use speech in ways that is harmful, then that means harm is going to come back to us. So out of everything that we learn in the Eightfold Path, every single step is utterly important to learn and understand and practice. But it's right speech that really has an enormous impact to our daily life. Because if the mind is just discontent on its own and you realize that and you're working on that, that's just you observing the mind is discontent, frustrated, angry, irritated, whatever it is, lonely or bored. But when we start speaking in ways that causes problems or causes harm to others, this is where our speech can actually have real lasting effect it can actually destroy otherwise very healthy relationships. And sometimes it can be as simple as one sentence can destroy a relationship. So as we learn this eightfold path on this path to enlightenment, it's important to understand right view, which is the Four Noble Truths, that we essentially cause all of our own discontent mind, and then we can actually solve it through training the mind and this is right view, essentially taking responsibility for our own mind. And the second step, which is right intention, which is the intention of practicing harmlessness, non-ill will. Because these two steps are very important that we need to first take responsibility for our own actions or our own mind, our own practice. And then through right intention, if we practice the right thought or the right intention of not causing harm to anyone, then sometimes our intentions and our speech don't really match. So it's important that we look at right speech and really clean up our speech so that we're not causing harm to others around us. And in the book that I share, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, I share this text that kind of encapsulates a little bit of right speech. And then I go on to share the Buddha's teachings on the five factors of well-spoken speech, which really brings home the teachings of right speech in a very consolidated teaching. But what I share here is just kind of an encapsulation to kind of help you see a little bit more of the type of speech that we should always be practicing. And what I share here is that our speech should be polite. It should be respectful. It should be wholesome, right? By practicing polite, respectful, and wholesome speech, we're not causing harm to others around us, especially if we've got this intention of harmlessness or non-ill will, that we can always be polite, respectful, and wholesome speech. Even as you're working on this path, and you encounter people that you know you still have anger for and you have hatred for and you have maybe ill will even and, and hostility. Even though you're a work in progress, if you can just bring yourself 
to just, if you need to speak, be polite, be respectful, be wholesome. There's no benefit in having a hostile relationship with anyone in this world. It doesn't benefit us. So by using polite, respectful, and wholesome speech in any and all situations, we're not causing harm to others. And sure, you still need to work on that anger, that hatred, that ill will that's inside of you that you might be feeling towards this person, but at least you're not causing any harm through your speech, which will come back to you. And then you quietly work on that through loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness, but at least in an outward direction, you have this polite, respectful, and wholesome speech. What we want to avoid with our speech is we want to avoid idle chatter or unpurposeful talk. What idle chatter or unpurposeful talk is, is just blah, 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 right? With no real intention or purpose behind it. This causes harm. If we're just chatting away and chatting away about unuseful things, then the other person on the other side needs to listen to that. And there's other people that hear that. And then your words and your speech don't have as much strength behind them. Here in Thailand, we have a word called barami. It's called barami, okay? What this word is, is what it means, barami. It means someone who others listen to. Barami, or if someone has barami, it means that this person is well-respected. It's one who people listen to. And barami is something that you establish, one who people listen to. And the way you establish that is through right speech. And if you have idle chatter or unpurposeful talk, and 90% of what you say is unpurposeful, or even 50%, or even 30% of what you say is just yada, 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 yada. When you open your mouth and start talking, people just kind of get used to kind of ignoring it because it's unpurposeful speech. To be a wise practitioner moving towards this enlightened mind state, you want to be sure that as you speak, there's purpose behind your words, that you thought about the words you're going to say, and that you say things that are helpful and beneficial or purposeful, and you're not using idle chatter. That will help you to establish barami, or one who people listen to. And that includes not using gossip, right? If we gossip about people, this is unpurposeful speech. And gossip doesn't necessarily mean that it's untruthful. You can actually talk with gossip and it's true, but it's still gossip. If there's someone who's a little bit negative in the office and everybody knows they're negative, sitting around and gossiping about them isn't helping you to establish barami, one who people listen to. Because if you're talking negatively about others, even if it's true, it degrades that person and it doesn't help you to stay in a good light where people respect you. Because if you're talking negatively about others, it's harmful. And that means people are gonna talk negatively about you at some point as well. So there's no benefit to gossiping about people, even if it's true. 
Likewise, using harsh language. We need to find gentle, kind, caring, compassionate ways to talk to people and to talk with people, especially if you're maybe in a parent role or you have a partner or you're a boss or you're a community leader. You're going to be in a role where you're going to be guiding people, maybe guiding your children or guiding your partner or guiding employees or community members. And there's going to be things that you need to move them towards. There's no reason to talk negatively about what they're doing in a negative sense. So we need to find gentle language that moves them to the desired results. That's what a real leader is going to do. They're not going to degrade other people. And through degrading other people, somehow they feel better. What a real true leader is going to do is going to find unique ways to present what it is that they're moving the group or moving the person or the child to. And they're going to guide the child or they're going to guide the group or they're going to guide their employees or their friends to this desired result with gentle language, using truth not speaking with false speech or lies. So we need to always speak the truth because if we're going to establish barami and we actually are lying frequently, then eventually people just stop paying attention to you because they keep getting false information, false truths. We're speaking with falsehoods. So to establish this barami, the one who people listens to, we need to always speak with truthful language. And we shouldn't have deceit. Deceit is when we kind of misrepresent the truth or just kind of hide the truth. Even though we know what the truth is, we kind of like talk over here so that people don't kind of discover the truth. We kind of talk to the side so that people don't kind of look at the truth. This is deceit. And when people discover that we're talking with deceit, that we actually knew the truth, but we didn't share it, then that's when we get problems because we're essentially harming. Even though we spoke the truth, we didn't lie. We were still hiding the truth. That's what deceit is. And by hiding the truth, then we're not one that people rely on. We don't become trustworthy or dependable. In this barami or the one who people listen to, it starts to diminish more and more. And of course, if we use slander, it's the same way. Slander would be publicly speaking about somebody in a public way or even just two or three people and having false truths as part of the speech. And we're trying to degrade the person's reputation through misrepresenting the truth in order to knock somebody down. This would be slander. And then in certain situations, we actually blame other people in our speech. When something happens, we never take responsibility for the situation. We're always blaming other people. We blame other people for what goes on. And this is going to cause harm. If we're practicing right view, which is the first step of the Eightfold Path, where we accept responsibility for what's happening in our life, in our mind, then we wouldn't blame other people when things go wrong. We would discuss as a group or individually how we can improve the situation, 
but there's no benefit in blaming other people. So we need to speak in a way that is blameless or without blame. This is going to ensure that there's no harm. So by practicing right view where we accept responsibility for everything that happens, we practice right intention, which is harmlessness or non-ill will, then when we speak with right speech, we wouldn't blame other people. We would always find ways to find solutions rather than blaming because it doesn't make sense to blame people because a lot of times people just make mistakes. So rather than focusing on blame, let's focus on solutions and find out how to solve this issue. The golden rule here that was not something that the Buddha said, but is something that my grandmother shared with me. She used to always say this to me. She said, you know, David, if you don't have something good to say, don't say anything at all, right? This is grandma's golden rule. And she's still alive today. She's 96 years old. She's had a really long life, very well-respected woman, and people in their community really, really respect her. And she had a lot of wise things to share with me growing up. This was one of her teachings. If you don't have something good to say, then don't say anything at all, right? And this was something that always stuck with me as a child. She also had another saying about speech as it relates to other people. And you guys have probably heard this one. She said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And this is another one of grandma's sayings that stuck with me, right? Sticks and stones will break my bones if someone throws them at me, but words will never hurt me. And this is something that she lived by, right? So when somebody speaks and they're being hostile or they're gossiping or they have false speech or they have harsh language or other people are speaking disrespectful, don't allow their words to hurt you right? If you don't have something good to say, then don't say anything at all. So this is kind of what I shared in terms of the teachings that I was looking to share with right speech. And then I follow that up in the book in chapter five in the Eightfold Path about right speech. I follow that up with the five factors of well-spoken speech, which is a teaching from Gautama Buddha that I'll share next. But I'd like to just pause here and see if we have any questions before we move on to Gautama Buddha's teachings. Thanks, David. Yes, we have a couple of questions. I'd just like to say my grandma used to say the same thing. <laughs> the exact same thing. Uh, very wise. Yes, grandmas are really good for that, aren't they? Absolutely. Okay, so Bill asks, regarding right speech, one of my core issues I've noticed for many years is that because I have awareness of mind, I'm mindful when I'm having a conversation that I have the perception that I'm being interrupted either by the other person or by a third party. It's one of the reasons I have an aversion to social gatherings. And then the question, is it better to just let others interrupt during a conversation or is there a skillful way to ask others to let you finish your thoughts? You have to take this on a case-by-case basis, Bill. In certain situations, I find that it's better just to let somebody else talk because if they have really strong craving, that's why people tend to interrupt, right? They have strong craving. They just 
really have this desire to say something and they're trying to get it out, this burning desire. And even if you tell them, hold on, I'm still talking, their mind's going to now become discontent because their craving didn't get fulfilled. So you being maybe a wiser person who is practicing these teachings and recognizing their craving and you practicing patience, being more patient, then sometimes it's better just to go ahead and let them talk. And five, 10 minutes later, just circle back and, okay, you know, is it okay if, if I share what I need to share at this point? And that's sometimes often the very best way to handle the situation, especially in a group of people that you aren't familiar with and who aren't familiar with you. Now, that's how I would tend to practice in a group of people that I'm not really that familiar with. If I was in a group of students, for example, who I know are interested in learning right speech, if somebody interrupts, I will oftentimes just politely ask them to hold on and kind of show them that they're interrupting. And of course, like my son, if he interrupts, I would show him because I'm trying to teach him right speech. But in situations where you're just in a social gathering, you're not teaching people and they're not open to necessarily learning with you. So you always have to understand your role in a situation and when it might be conducive for you just to let other people talk versus when it might be better for you to maybe in a teaching role actually share teachings that will help people. So you'll have to choose on a case-by-case basis. There's not a one-size-fits-all. That's the impermanence aspect. But if you're kind of wise and aware and just kind of take your time and be patient, it can actually be a good practice for you if you have an aversion to people interrupting you to kind of let some people interrupt you and not get angry and not get hostile and practice patience. It can actually be really good for you to just let it go and not allow your craving to kind of push through and create hostility or anger. So you have to decide for yourself in the moment, kind of what are you working on? What's the context? Am I in a social gathering? Am I in a teaching situation? You know, they're burning craving. You know, maybe it's better to just let them talk and maybe I'll work on some of my patients while they're talking. And that can be a really good thing for you. And uh, so you'll have to play it by ear, Bill. I can't really give you kind of a one-size-fits-all answer. But hopefully in there, you have some things that you can try and see what works in different situations for you. What would your guidance be, David, then, if maybe others are trying to pull us into unpurposeful talk, either one-on-one or in a small group? Every situation is different. You know, I know that we, the mind wants that one answer and it wants to hold on and it wants to apply that permanent answer that's going to work in every situation. But the reality of the situation is every situation is different. This is where you have to use discernment or, you know, good decision making and see what is the right choice and, you know, what bit of words can you share? What kind of situation are you in? If somebody's trying to pull you into an unpurposeful speech, you know, let them talk and let them speak. Let them get it all out. And doesn't mean that you need to go in that direction. Uh, You can just let them speak and just listen. Uh, Part of becoming enlightened is being very patient. You know, we don't see that anywhere on the Eightfold Path. We don't see that anywhere in the Brahma Viharas. 
We don't see that in the five precepts or the Four Noble Truths. But patience is absolutely part of this path, is learning how to be patient. And the more enlightened you become, you know, get rid of the arrogance, get rid of the ego, get rid of anything that makes you want to feel that you're so enlightened. But the more enlightened you become, you're going to realize how unenlightened other people really are that aren't on this path, that aren't studying this path. You're going to see the suffering, the discontentness, the anger, the frustration. You're going to see the craving so clearly. You're going to see the disrespectful speech. You're going to see the unpurposeful speech. And your mind still has craving and still craves permanence. And it's going to want everybody to be practicing in the same way as you. But in the reality of the, the situation is, is that the more you start observing your own discontentness and shedding it and getting rid of it, the more you start speaking with right speech and knowing what that is, the more you're going to be able to identify when others aren't practicing these teachings. And it's important that you don't come across with ego or arrogance or you don't judge other people, you don't look down on them. But these are times for you to practice loving kindness, active goodwill towards all beings, and definitely compassion concern for others' misfortune. So if somebody was having unpurposeful speech or idle chatter and trying to pull me into that conversation, you know, my mind immediately goes to loving kindness and compassion for this person. Uh, I don't look down on them. I don't think, oh, look at them. They're so unenlightened and I'm so wise because I know all the Buddhist teachings and blah, 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 blah. This is the absolute wrong thing to ever think is more should come from loving kindness and compassion. And this is also one of the reasons why I encourage people, even if you haven't experienced discontentness for many, many months or years, and you pretty much know that the mind is enlightened after going through all these teachings, is to never consider yourself enlightened because it can come out as arrogance and ego. And if there's arrogance and ego, then you're not enlightened. So the more wise or the more enlightened you become, the more you need to really practice these teachings to be patient, to be calm, to be loving, to be understanding of people who aren't on the path and take your time and just kind of gradually move people in a certain direction based on what's happening in the situation. You're going to encounter people that you're doing transactions with and their mind might be very cluttered and unconcentrated and unfocused. And that's because they're not learning and practicing these teachings. I think recently, uh, last month, I went and processed my visa. And the woman who was taking care of my visa processing, she's a young person and probably busy with a lot of things in her life. And she may even be new to the job but she was really having a lot of problems with knowing what forms that I needed, knowing what things I needed to sign off on, knowing, knowing like kind of when to engage me and when not to. And I could tell that she was really struggling because she didn't have the concentration and the focus that she really needed. And this was a great time to just practice patience and, you know, kind of helping her through and kind of helping her and guiding her rather than being angry and, you know, you're the worker, I'm paying you for this. And why aren't you more on top of your job? And, you know, 
I'm going to another company. How dare you guys not have your ball game together? What I chose to do is just kind of be patient with her and just kind of help her slowly go through the process and understand that she's making mistakes. And at one point they actually made a mistake that would have ended up costing me a hundred baht, which is only $3, but it's still a hundred baht. And rather than just absorbing that, I mentioned to her, I said, you know, you noticed that this was a mistake that you guys made and we can fix it, but I think your company should reimburse me for the hundred baht. And I just said it nice and polite and kind. And this was my way of ensuring that they understood their gamma, that they recognized that they were at fault, that they made a mistake without ever using the word, it's your fault, you know, you did this wrong. I just politely, kindly said, sure, I can go get another bank statement. You know, I got one last week that you asked me to go do and I paid a hundred baht for that. You know, it seems like since you're asking me to do this again, and it was just because you were unclear on the process, it seems like maybe your company should reimburse me for that hundred baht. And by talking with right speech, never blaming her, never telling her she made a mistake, never making her feel bad or being hostile, her company gave me the hundred baht. It was really simple. And then I went off and got my other bank statement that they were asking for, and it all went perfectly fine. And this is where, when you see the Buddhist teachings on the five factors of well-spoken speech, when you practice in this way, you can be in situations like that and things just go really well for you. And they just go really well because you're practicing the teachings of being calm, being patient, being friendly, being polite, not blaming other people. There's a lot of aspects of this path that you need to practice and right speech is just one that's really, really important that will be very beneficial for you in your practice when you start nailing this and getting it better and better. Your personal professional relationships will blossom. But if you're not getting this well and you're not practicing right speech, then you're going to notice a lot of problems are happening in your life. So by you clearing up your speech, you're going to see a lot more things happen real smooth for you in life. Thanks, David. That's also a good example of how different people at different times might have chosen a different course of action there. Yes, exactly. They, There's different ways yeah. to handle that. Mm -hmm. For example, if someone knew that had they brought that up, they knew their mind had a risk of maybe becoming a bit averse, getting a bit angry. They might have just decided, you know what, I'm not ready to handle this in a mindful way. I'm not a teacher. I'm going to struggle to teach them about karma. Better if I just absorb that hundred baht. Exactly. And the fact that it, the fact it was their fault is neither really here nor there. You know, it's just a decision I'm making to protect my own contentedness. Exactly, and that's why I always say there's 10 million right answers, and you know, lots of wrong answers. And in that particular situation, I was able to make it really easy, really smooth, and came to a good outcome. And that was how I chose to handle that one particular situation. And I'm working with people who are practicing the Buddhist teachings, right? So she's kind of been brought up from birth to take responsibility for her actions and things that she's done. So in this particular culture, in that particular situation, what I did, it worked well, but that doesn't mean it's going to work in every situation. So that's why I can't give you answers for what would you do if somebody was trying to pull you into an unpurposeful discussion 
or like Bill's question, you know, what would you do in this situation? I can tell you what I would do, but there's always 10 million answers that I might come up with. And that's where you, the Buddhist teachings are more of guidance and you kind of have to work within that and kind of see what works. He never tells you exactly what to say, but he gives you kind of this framework in which to apply your own thinking and your own wisdom and how to remedy this in the best way. We have a question from Roxanne. She asks, I find right speech difficult to do as a parent. How to discipline your children while being a mindful parent? How not to get angry or upset with the actions and behaviors of your children? Great. Children are really challenged because parents tend to have really strong attachment. There's a lot of craving, desire, attachment. There's this mental longing with a strong eagerness for your kids to be a certain way. And because of that, the mind has craving, desire, attachment, wants your kids to do certain things. And because of that longing, you're going to be discontent. And oftentimes your speech is going to be hostile. And what you've got to do is you've got to pull that back. You've got to pull back the craving to get to the right speech with children. You got to pull back the craving. You got to pull back that longing and strong eagerness and recognize that just like you, your children are going to need gradual training. You can't say things just one time and your child gets it. You can't even do that with adults most of the time. So a child needs constant, steady, continuous encouragement and guidance. Yelling at a child is only going to teach a child to yell at you. If we become hostile with our children and we practice wrong speech towards our children, because we're causing that harm, that harm's gonna come back to us. This is one of the reasons why children are disrespectful or talk in disrespectful ways to parents. It's because the parents are setting the tempo and setting the example. So you've gotta clean up your right speech and make sure that you're speaking in a very polite, respectful, wholesome way to your children, even if they're being hostile back to you, you be polite, kind, and respectful. And if it means you walk away from them and don't talk to them at all, then that could be an answer too. But you've got to slowly help them to see that you are going to guide them based on right speech. And when we get to the five factors of well-spoken speech, this is something that you can actually share with your children and show them how this is the way that you would like to start working to practice and you would like them to start doing it as well. But if you've got this strong craving in place where you have this longing and strong eagerness for your children to be a certain way and you're impatient about that, your speech is going to be more hostile. It's gonna be hard to practice right speech. So to get to right speech, you've gotta pull back that longing and strong eagerness and just recognize your child needs this gradual training towards where you're leading them. And they're not gonna get it right the first time, they're not gonna get it right the 10th time or the 100th time in certain situations. I've been working with my son for a year and a half, two years for these little white lies, you know, that he's seven and a half years old. You know, he, he just keeps telling all these little white lies. And, you know, even today, you know, we told him, he went out in the middle of the day, spent time with his friends. We told him in the evening we would like him to spend time at home. We think he spent enough time outside. He went outside without mom and dad knowing. 
right? He just kind of like made his way slowly outside and riding a bike. And rather than yell at him and all of this stuff, I, after five or 10 minutes, I noticed he was outside. I called him in. He came upstairs and I sat him down and I said, do you know what mommy and daddy said to you today about going outside? He said, yeah, I'm not supposed to go outside. And I said, well, where were you when daddy called you? He said, I was outside. And I said, is that a good decision? And he said, no, that wasn't a good decision. And I said, okay, so there you go. You see, you're making not good decisions, right? So I just calmly kind of showed him that these decisions that he was making are not going to produce good results for him. And then, of course, he needed to stay in for the rest of the night for that which was already the plan anyway, but sitting down and yelling at him because he went against me and he didn't follow what I said, my ego comes into it. If there was ego or arrogance or whatever, if I allowed those kind of things in an unenlightened state to come into it, then yeah, there's going to be hostile speech and that's not going to be beneficial to your child and your child's development. So you want to be this example that your child models and replicates. And this is where the Buddha said, one who sees me sees the teachings. And there's another part to that too, but one who sees me sees the teachings. So if you're the shining example of these teachings more and more and more and more, then the people in your household will gradually start to learn and practice these teachings more and more. But there's got to be somebody in the household who kind of kicks this off and starts ensuring that people realize like, okay, we're gonna start practicing these and as a family, we'll gradually move in the right direction, realizing that there's gonna be missteps along the way, but you just gradually as a group work towards improving your speech, which is going to come with reducing your craving, your attachment, your mental longing with a strong eagerness. Okay, we have no more questions. Okay, so let's go to the next piece which is the last part that I plan to share today before we get into our meditation, which is Gautama Buddha's teachings on the five factors of well-spoken speech. The Buddha's teachings on five factors of well-spoken speech, I think are just absolutely outstanding. The more that you practice these and get your speech to be completely in line with all five of these at all times, you will see it becomes so straightforward for you to have healthy and productive relationships, both personally and professionally. And it's going to take time. And when you have conversations, if you get two or three of these factors nailed and you miss the other two and the conversation goes in a direction you weren't hoping it would go, then just excuse yourself from that. Don't feel guilty, but just look at these two factors that you missed so that you can then improve them on the next subsequent conversation. Because this teaching on the five factors of well-spoken speech is absolutely what you need to do in order to ensure you're not causing harm to any other people during your practice of speech. And what the Buddha says here is, bhikkhus, possessing five factors, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken, It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. What five? One, it is spoken at the proper time. Two, what is said is true. Three, 
it is spoken gently. Four, what is said is beneficial. Five, it is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Possessing these five factors, speech is well spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. Okay, so let's look at this. Whenever you see wise, when the Gautama Buddha is talking about the wise, what he's talking about is pretty much enlightened people, people who already know, right? So he's always kind of holding this ideal guidance of if you're going to be enlightened, this is the way enlightened people speak. And he gives these five factors. And of course, he talks about blameless because if you blame other people, then they're going to become discontent. If they're unenlightened, they're going to become discontent. So there's no sense in blaming people with our speech. So he kind of starts off and ends with talking blamelessly. And then when he goes into the five factors, he says, speak at the proper time. Because if there's a conversation going on and someone interrupts, like Bill was talking about, it's not the right time to talk. And this is going to cause problems in relationships. So we need to make sure that we're talking at the right time. And this is going to ensure that we don't cause any harm. Then we need to make sure what we say is true. Always speak truthful. This is even one of the five precepts. Because it's so important, that's why the Buddha follows it up with the five precepts, where he says we should always speak the truth, one to be relied on, not a deceiver of the world, trustworthy, dependable, right? So by speaking the truth and always speaking the truth, then we know that we're not causing any harm. Gautama Buddha followed this so closely that even when he told a joke, he didn't tell a lie, right? People have a hard time thinking that a Buddha would actually tell a joke, right? But a Buddha is a normal person. They're just enlightened and they did it on their own and they teach and guide other people to enlightenment. And the last one currently known to the world existed 2,500 years ago. So they still have a personality. A Buddha doesn't just sit on clouds and meditate for 24 hours a day, right? They are engaging with people. And in order for somebody to be interested in learning with a teacher, they have to be kind of, you know, a friendly person, kind person that people enjoy being around. So for a Buddha to tell a joke, sure, he talks about that in his teachings that even when he tells a joke, he doesn't lie. So he always tells a truthful joke. And if you train your mind this way to always speak the truth, then people will look at you as being dependable and trustworthy. And they know whenever you open your mouth, this guy tells the truth. Always, always. Even when he tells a joke, he tells the truth. Always, right? So you always want to make sure you're speaking the truth. And then be sure you speak gently. This is your word choice. This is your tempo, right? This is your tone. Always make sure that you're speaking gently, right? So when you're choosing certain words, when you're speaking in a certain way, always look to be speaking gently. It doesn't mean you can't be kind of firm, right? Because sometimes when I talk with my son, I, I speak a little bit firm, to make sure he really knows what I'm talking about. But my word choice and my tone and my tempo of speaking, it's always going to come 
you know, from a gentle place. This way we don't cause harm with our words. And then we speak beneficially. This is the purposeful speech that I talked about, not having idle chatter, ensuring that when we speak that we're benefiting other people through our language, through our time. Because if someone's going to sit there and listen to you, you want to make sure that what you're saying is beneficial to them. And this is going to help to create that barami that we talked about, one who people listen to. Because whenever this person speaks, he speaks at the right time, or she speaks the truth, speaks gently and beneficially, right? People are ready to listen to this person. And then the fifth factor of well-spoken speech is a mind of loving kindness or active goodwill towards all beings, right? Because we can speak at the right time. We can say something that's true. We can speak gently. We can speak beneficially but we can kind of have a little bit of sarcasm in there because we just kind of want to push someone's buttons, right? So if we don't get that last factor with a mind of loving kindness, even if we're practicing the other four, it can cause harm. Therefore, harm is going to come to us. Because typically when we're sarcastic with people, or if you are sarcastic with people, they're going to be sarcastic right back. And then you might take offense to it and become angry. Right. So by you speaking in this way, even if other people are hostile and aggressive, it ensures that you're not causing harm to others. And the beauty in this is by you cleaning up your speech like this, not only will you see your professional and personal relationships blossom, but if you have many, many, many months of having trained your mind to speak this way and you know that you always speak this way, when other people become hostile towards you, you know that you didn't cause that, right? Right now, if you speak or you say something and somebody becomes hostile to you, you kind of have to think for a moment, like, did I cause that? Like, what did I do? Did I say something wrong? Like, why is this person being hostile with me? Like, I thought I was just being kind and polite. And you kind of have to think and your mind becomes a little bit unweary and, and, and maybe even discontent. But since you know the Buddhist teachings are based on this awakened wisdom that he had, when you train your mind to speak this way, this is how the mind's protected, right? The Buddha talks in his teachings about by learning and practicing his teachings, your mind is protected. Or you've gone to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha for refuge. When you speak in this way and you have a really long history of doing so, when you start seeing your relationships get cleaned up because you're speaking in this way, when you happen into a conversation and someone starts being hostile towards you, you know you didn't cause that. So you can remain calm, peaceful, content, and joyful because you know you didn't cause it, because you didn't say anything that was harmful. Now, early on, you can't have arrogance and ego. You have to analyze whether you were truly using these five factors of well-spoken speech. But the more you practice and get better and better at this over multiple months and years, and you see that every time you speak this way, it really helps you to kind of smooth out your relationships and you get better and better at this. When you happen into an occasional conversation where people are disrespectful, you know it wasn't you. Because in your circle of friends and in your colleagues and in your 
family life. You've been known for many, many months and years to speak in this way, and people are speaking to you in this way. When you just happen into a Facebook group or into a certain conversation and someone attacks you, you know that you had nothing to do with that. And that's where you can remain very peaceful, very calm and serene and content with joy. And you know that, okay, this is that person's craving or hatred. It didn't come from you. So this can be very comforting to you. The more you learn and practice this, not only is it going to clear out your relationships, but it's going to help you to stand on good footing when others are maybe talking to you unpolite or people start blaming you for things. You can say things like, well, you know, I, I would never blame you for a situation. Why don't we just focus on finding a solution for this situation? But hold on, hold on. You made a mistake and you did this and you did that and da 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 right? I understand. I see where you're coming from with that. Yes, it was a mistake, but let's focus on the solution and get this issue solved. That's going to make everything better here. Oh, okay. Right. So you can actually use some of the Buddha's words here in conversations with people to help them kind of relax a bit and get really focused on what it is that you're trying to accomplish in a given conversation. And this is where the more you read and study his teachings and you learn these practices, you can see how the Buddha speaks. You can be around a community of people who are speaking in this way and you can kind of borrow the things that you hear other people using and saying and, and just use it for yourself in order to use in situations where you're maybe having a situation that you need to resolve. You can use right speech that you hear from others and it can benefit you in resolving certain situations. So any questions on these five factors of well-spoken speech? We have no questions, David. Okay. If that's the case, let's move into our meditation then. So that was really an opportunity for us to explore right speech because it's so, so, so important. And keep in mind that in the Buddha's day, it was right speech, right? And it's all spoken language. Nowadays, it's right speech, but it's right text message. It's right posting on Facebook, it's right commenting on social media, it's right email, right? We use speech in a lot of ways nowadays that didn't really exist during the Buddhist time, but we can apply these same five factors of well-spoken speech and the things that I was sharing previously in our written communication as well. And what you'll find is that the more and more you practice this way, you will be communicating right? So right communication is kind of maybe how we would phrase this today, not just right speech, but right communication through speech, through text, through email, through posts, through comments, through all the different ways that we communicate with people. Okay. Now, in order to get to right speech, we need to make sure that our craving is starting to be eliminated and eradicated. That's where breathing mindfulness meditation comes into play. If we have this longing and strong eagerness to just get our words in, then we might not speak at the right time. If we have this eagerness to kind of move people in a certain direction, 
we might tell a little tiny lie just to kind of get what it is that we really want. This is our craving. And we might tell a little fib or we might talk with deceit just to kind of get what we want. Or we might even gossip about somebody to our boss just to get that promotion because of our craving. Or we might speak, you know, unkindly with harsh words, not using gentle speech if we have this strong craving. Or we may speak in unpurposeful ways, unbeneficial ways. And we might speak with a mind that is not of loving kindness, but is more anger and hatred. So getting the craving down and getting it reduced through a daily consistent meditation practice of breathing mindfulness meditation will help lead us towards this path of right speech. And of course, also before that, right intention, which is a mind that is practicing harmlessness or non-ill will. So using loving kindness meditation for that. For our meditation, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation only today, which is where we're going to focus on the breath. The breath is the anchor. We're going to focus the mind on the breath. The breath is the present moment. If the mind goes into the past, it has a tendency to be worried or neurotic or holding on to pain or pleasure or different feelings from our past. So we want to bring the mind to the present moment, which is the breath. Or the mind will have a tendency to go to the future. And again, you know, painful feelings or pleasant feelings crave certain things in the future and the mind is going to be discontent. It's only when we bring the mind to the present moment that it can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So training the mind to always be in the present moment. So during meditation, if the mind goes to the past or to the future, you want to focus it on the breath, only the breath. That's the present moment. As the mind has various thoughts or ideas or perceptions, just let them go. Cut them off is the language that the Buddha used. Just cut off the thoughts and bring the mind to the breath, the present moment. Okay, that's what we're going to do in meditation. For today, your body position, probably you're going to be in seated position, which is probably on the floor in a chair. So if you want to take a position on the floor, go ahead and sit on the floor with your legs crossed, but not too tight because you don't want your circulation to be inhibited. You want to keep the circulation going. If you are going to sit on the floor and your circulation does start to not flow and your legs fall asleep, what you want to do is get a cushion under your butt and kind of lift up the butt so that you lessen the angle at your hip joint. If your hips are really, really tight and there's a tight angle there, there's a tendency for your legs to fall asleep. So by getting your rear up in the air, it will lessen the angle at your hip. If you're sitting in a chair, you can just sit in a chair and put your feet on the floor or cross your feet. Your upper body, it should be in the middle, not real rigid and not real slouched. If you're engaging your muscles in your upper body, this will keep your mind attentive and active. It will keep it to the point where you can actually train it through an alert mind. Whereas if you're in a chair and you lean back, or if you're on the floor and you lean up against the wall, then the mind has a tendency to disengage and it's not going to be attentive or alert in order for you to actually actively train it through this training session.
Now, if you're having pain in your back and leaning up against the back of a chair or the wall will help lessen the pain, then go ahead and see if that works for you. Just be sure to maintain an active mind so that you can actively train the mind. Okay, your hands and your arms, there's lots of options here. You can put your right hand over your left with your thumbs together and then put those on your lap. Or you can just place your palms on your lap or on your knees, whichever you would like to do. There's not just one way to do this. Okay, first I'm going to start out with some chanting just to kind of ease the mind into meditation and start to become aware of the mind and the breath. That's what our chanting practice is for and to help us cultivate good memory. If you know these chants from our previous sessions, you're welcome to chant along. And then once we get into meditation, I will give you some guidance. After we meditate for a period of time, then I'll do some chants on the backside to bring us out of meditation. Okay, so go ahead and get in your position, get nice and comfortable. Start focusing on the breath. Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. A nice, steady, consistent, natural breath. As I chant, just focus on the breath. Or if you'd like to chant along, you're welcome to do that. Arahang Samo Tamang Namasami Supatipano Makawato Savakasanko Sankang Namami Napmodhasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmodhasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmodhasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Itipiso Mahakava Arahang Samasamputo we charanang sam huno sakato roka vito anu tero purisa tamasati satatawa 
मनुसना भूतो You should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Focus the mind on the breath. Don't force the breath or try to control it. Just a nice, natural breath. In through the nose and out through the nose. <clears throat> Bring the mind to be aware of the breath. Focus on the sound coming in through the nose or maybe the sensation of the air passing over the skin into the nose. The breath is the present moment. You're interested in training the mind to be in the present moment by focusing only on the breath. If any thoughts come to the mind, let them go. Cut them off and bring the focus of the mind to the breath. If thoughts of the past come up, wherever you notice that, just cut it off, let it go. Bring the mind to the breath. If thoughts of the future, if the mind kind of wanders, takes you into the future, wherever you notice that, just cut it off and bring the focus to the breath. The mind should be focused on the breath, only the breath. Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. If there's any thoughts or ideas or perceptions, notice how all those thoughts arise and you can cut them off because they're impermanent. You can let them go. Those thoughts are not permanent. Those thoughts are not you. Those thoughts are not you. Let them go. They're impermanent. Focus the mind on the breath. If any sensations arise in the body, don't feel like you need to itch it. Don't feel like you need to immediately scratch it. Just notice how you can bring the mind to the breath. As soon as you feel any sensation in the body, you can just cut it off and bring the mind to the breath because that sensation is impermanent. Train the mind not to run to that sensation on the body. Train the mind to just stick with the breath. Cut off the thought, let it go, and bring the mind to the breath.
the breath is the present moment. With the mind focused on the present moment, the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Breathing in and out. I'm going to leave you on your own now to just train the mind because I don't even want your mind to be holding on to my voice. I don't want it to have a longing or an eagerness to always hear something during meditation. So I'm going to be quiet and let you just train the mind to focus on the breath. You have nowhere to go. You have nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to train the mind to let go. Focus on the breath.
As you guys know, I don't watch the time about how long we actually meditated for. There's really no need to really keep track of your time. Just start meditating and when you're done, you're done. That way your mind's not longing and craving and having the strong eagerness to reach a certain time. Or if it doesn't reach that time, it doesn't feel guilty. So just don't even set an alarm or set a time so that there's no longing for a certain amount of time of meditation. Just let it go. Okay. Any questions on your meditation, what we did, anything coming up from your practice, anything you're noticing that you would like to get some guidance on? During that guided session, David, you said to if we experience discomfort, just to bring the attention back. And I was wondering, is there ever a case for looking at discomfort a bit more closely? I suggest that you just cut it off. So if you feel 
sensation, like a tickle, like a little itch in your body, and your mind goes to it because it, it's aware of it, just bring the mind back to the breath. And early on, this might be a little bit challenging, and you might bring your mind to your breath in just two or three or four seconds. It just feels like, oh, I gotta itch it. So go ahead and do that if you really, really have to, but then try to get the amount of time that your mind can ignore the itch and just focus on the breath longer and longer and longer and longer. And that will be really beneficial to the mind. That's where the mind becomes very steady and unshakable because during meditation, if every single time you feel a sensation, you start itching, then you don't have control over the mind to just let it go. And initially it might just be three, four five seconds that you can kind of let it go. And then you might feel like, oh, I got to itch. But over time, you should get to the point where these little tickles, sensations don't bother you. Now, if your hip is an extreme pain or your knee or something like this, I suggest during your meditation that you change positions because there's no award given for pushing through the pain. And if all your mind is experiencing is pain, 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 then you're not going to be able to train it to either eliminate craving or cultivate loving kindness while you're sitting there in pain. So grab a pillow, switch to lying meditation, switch to standing meditation or walking or whatever it is. So don't fight through any pain. If it's just a mild little pain and you just want to kind of work on getting your hips a little bit more loose. Okay. There's a case to be made for that. But if it's a real intense pain, that's your body's way of telling you, Hey, something's wrong here. Fix it. And there's no awards giving for just pushing through the pain. So the longer you go without scratching the sensations, the better for your mind It's going to train it to be more stable. But if it's a real intense pain, physical pain, then change so that you can get comfortable and that way it'll allow you to keep training the mind okay so we're not allowing our attention to dwell on the pain or trying to look at it more closely we're really taking our attention away from it bringing it back to the breath right that way training the mind to not be so discontent if pain does happen to arise Right. not take it so seriously. And yet if it is actually that the pain is warning us, telling us that something's wrong with the body, we should listen to that. But at the same time, not allowing ourselves to become discontent by dwelling on it. Right. And, you know, by training the mind to not focus on the pain, right? You don't need to go investigate it. You don't need to label it. You don't need to, you know, do all this activity with the mind because that's just encouraging the mind to have craving. What we're trying to do in breathing mindfulness meditation is eliminate craving. So we're trying to train the mind to let go, to let go, to let go. So that's why when you feel that little itch, you got to train the mind, just let it go, let it go. It's impermanent. It's impermanent. Just let it go, let it go. Or if there's a thought from the past or the future or some idea or some painful thing comes to the mind, you got to train the mind, just cut it off, let it go, just focus on the breath. Don't even say those words. You know, I'm saying the words in order to teach you what to do. But if you're in meditation and your mind goes to something to the past, wherever you realize that, just bring it right back to the breath. Don't label it. Don't, you know, thinking, judgment, pain. Don't try to label it. You just want to cut it and bring it right to the breath. And through doing this, 
then you'll get better and better at applying right effort from the Eightfold Path, which right effort is all about abandoning unwholesome mental states. So in daily life, when you feel anger or sadness or boredom or some discontent feeling arise, if you train your mind in meditation to let it go and cut it off, when you feel that discontent, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance arise, you'll get better and better at cutting that off and just let it go. And then eventually what will happen is that irritation and frustration and anger won't even arise. But it takes time to get to that of just continually meditating in the situation, apply right effort to let it go, let it go, let it go. Okay, thanks, David. Question from Tio. Can I meditate whilst I'm doing something? That is the opposite of meditating. What meditation is, is meditation is an active, independent, dedicated, purposeful training session where you're actively training the mind to eliminate certain qualities or cultivate certain qualities. If you are listening to music or washing dishes or gardening or jogging or walking the dog, you're listening to music, washing dishes, walking the dog, you're jogging, right? You can be practicing mindfulness, which is awareness of mind. And eventually, the more you practice these teachings and you do meditation, you practice awareness of mind or right mindfulness. That's what mindfulness means in the Buddha's discipline. People use mindfulness in a lot of different ways today in our language and our culture. But what the Buddha was saying was awareness of the mind. So while I'm washing the dishes, I'm aware of the mind. If any unwholesome thoughts arise, I'm cutting those off and eliminating them with right effort. If I'm washing the dishes and any wholesome thoughts come into the mind, then I'm supporting that and I'm encouraging that and I'm not allowing that to fade. That's right effort. Or as I'm walking the dog, if I'm walking the dog and I see somebody, one of my neighbors who I haven't particularly got along with very well and some anger arises and there's mindfulness, awareness of mind that that anger is coming up, then while you're walking the dog, cut that off, let it go. That's right effort. But at that time, you're not actually meditating. You are practicing mindfulness. It's your daily life practice. Meditation is an active, dedicated, purposeful training session of the mind. It's an independent session, either sitting, walking, standing, or lying. These four positions that the Buddha gave us, actively eliminating certain things from the mind or actively cultivating through a training session of the mind. That's meditation. And by the way, we should be meditating at least once a day. And if you can, do it twice a day, morning and evening. And if you can get a third one in the middle of the day, go for it. The Buddha meditated three times a day. So you have to kind of ramp up to that schedule. If you don't have a daily schedule right now, just get in the habit of doing a daily meditation, either morning or night. And then once you get that for a few weeks and you see it's really beneficial, add in a second one and then get that going for a while and get your you know, two meditations a day going, morning and evening. And then after you get that going for a while, if you would like to add in a third one and you've got the time, then add in a third one. And these are active, independent, purposeful, dedicated training sessions for the mind. 
And if you're not meditating regularly, every time you're angry, every time you're frustrated, every time you're bored or lonely or feeling guilty, every time you're, somebody says something to you and you don't like it and it creates frustration, it's just reminding you, you got to get to your practice. You got to get to that meditation. You got to get to learning the Eightfold Path and applying this in daily life. There's no other solution for eliminating this anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, boredom, loneliness. I don't know anything else in the world that's going to eliminate depression or anxiety, right? All of these different discontent feelings that we have. This medication we have in our society, it's not going to eliminate it. It just kind of numbs the mind for a period of time, but the sad feelings are still there right? It's not a permanent solution. The only permanent solution that I know of is enlightenment. And if you are currently taking medications for some of these challenges, some of these discontent feelings like depression or anxiety or fear or suicidal thoughts or things like this, and those thoughts are arising, what you'll notice is the more you practice these teachings, training the mind to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing a true reality, you'll probably gradually increase your practice. Your mind will become more and more stable and you can gradually eliminate your medication because now you've got a good, wholesome mental health that you've established through learning and practicing these teachings. We have a question from Manal. Teacher, David, is there an optimum time of day to actually meditate? I understand we shouldn't get used to any specific place of sitting, but does meditation during a particular time of day hold extra strength? You're not going to ever be able to meditate in exactly the same place all the time or exactly the same time all the time. I suggest you try different times so you can observe the benefits. What I observe is by meditating in the morning, my stomach is empty because I haven't eaten yet. My day hasn't started and it really sets up my day really nicely when I meditate in the morning. When I meditate in the evening, same thing, my stomach's empty, nobody's around, I meditate, it really helps to train my mind, and then I get a really good, nice sleep in the evening. So then I get a really nice, solid, nice sleep, good quality sleep, and I wake up in the morning and meditate again. And by doing it this way, morning and evening, I really get a lot of benefit because I'm waking up in the morning, setting up my day really nice, then in the evening, setting up my sleep really nice, right again in the morning, meditating again, setting up my day. But there's definitely been situations where in the middle of the day, I've meditated sometimes more than once, two, three, four, five times in, in a particular day. So you've got to work with this and you've got to see what works best. But in terms of picking like a hard, fast time, like 6 a.m. or 10 p.m., that would just be craving if you were trying to fixate this specific time every day to meditate, there's nothing special. Your mind and your body doesn't know that it's 6 a.m. It doesn't know that it's 10 p.m. There's nothing special out here that's going to be any more beneficial in terms of 8 p.m., 8.30, 9 p.m. This is not standard. There's no standard time. There's no permanent time that has any particular aura or special mysterious way that's going to be more beneficial to the mind or the body because your mind and body don't know what time it is. So just try morning and evening 
If you can do both of those and that's what your practice becomes, that's wonderful. And if you happen to miss one here and there, no big deal because you've got your regular schedule going on. And then if you can, you can slip one in the middle as well. And you're going to need to do lots and lots of meditation throughout your life. So you might as well get used to doing it on a regular basis and just make it part of your regular practice. And just like maybe in previous times, you wouldn't think about going outside without a shower or you wouldn't leave the house without brushing your teeth or something like this. Look at meditation exactly the same way. I wouldn't ever leave the house without meditating kind of thing, unless it was just a real emergency, you know, and you had to leave the house. But you're going to be back in the evening and you'll meditate that evening. So just be really dedicated to it. Pick some times and it doesn't even need to be like a, a scheduled thing. You know, I, I wake up at a different time every day. You know, there's there's no two days that I really wake up necessarily at the exact same time. I just wake up, do my stretch you know, kind of go into the bathroom and then meditate right away. I just know as soon as I wake up, it's time to meditate. And then usually before I go to bed, I'm almost always meditating uh, before bedtime. And you just get used to that. And that's what the mind needs. And uh, it, you just get more and more benefit from it. How can we be mindful in our sleep? And how can we set ourselves up for sleep well? And then how can we practice mindfulness during sleep? <laughs> when you're sleeping, you're sleeping. There's no mindfulness in sleeping. Okay. You're you're out of it. Yeah. So if you're trying to hold on to something while you're sleeping, then your mind's not resting. So just let it go. And this is one of the things, if you're having trouble with sleep or you're having insomnia and you develop this regular consistent meditation practice for yourself, you'll probably find that you'll slip into sleep a lot easier. But if you're still having trouble sleeping, if you've already got a dedicated, active, independent training session where you're doing this morning and evening, well, you've already got your active training going on where you're dedicating time for purposeful training. But then if you're laying in bed and you're having trouble sleeping, just focus on the breath. Focus on the breath. And what you'll notice is your mind will go into sleep much easier because typically the reason why we don't sleep is the mind's holding on to thoughts. And it's just got these repetitive thoughts that it's thinking about. So if you've already got a good daily meditation practice going on, you can kind of use meditation on the side for this extra benefit of falling asleep. But you don't want that to be your only meditation, right? That's why you need to have this other active, dedicated, independent meditation sessions going on. And then it can become beneficial to you and that your mind's really easy to let go of things. But yeah, I suppose if we are training the mind well before sleep, we're less likely to have a busy mind whilst we're asleep, less likely to dream, probably going to have better quality sleep. Absolutely. You know, this, this is like what I used to do in order to fall asleep, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, right? I was taking all this kind of stuff and uh, I'm almost two years now not taking any of that stuff. Sometimes I used to take eight, 10, 12 of those pills, I was kind of worried if I was ever going to overdose or not. Now I don't need any of it. I was on that stuff for 24 years taking that stuff right. and I just couldn't ever fall asleep. And that's because I wasn't meditating. I wasn't, I didn't know anything about Buddhism when I was 20, 21 years old, when the doctors put me on all that stuff. And it wasn't until many years later, as I discovered the Buddhist teachings and trained my mind this way, that I was able to eliminate all of that medication. And it's a beautiful thing 
not to have to one have the expense to buy that stuff but two you know having to ingest that stuff all the time but three there's always side effects from that stuff and just being able to naturally fall asleep and naturally wake up every day it's a beautiful thing and it's the Buddhist teachings and his practices that do that for you do you often do lying meditation before sleep I wouldn't say often. There's definitely been times where I, I've used it more or less. Like if I can't sit because of my legs or my back or something, like maybe I've been involved in something where I pulled a muscle or something, I'll typically go to lying meditation. But I have to be really aware because lying meditation, my mind has a tendency to slip into sleep. So I want to keep the mind active and dedicated to training. So if I'm going to use lying meditation, I need to really be sure that I keep the mind active. And I typically only get about 15 or 20 minutes meditation out of uh, a lying meditation before I, I do become sleepy. Or what I'll do is I'll switch to a walking meditation. Um, I haven't been using walking meditation for the last year and a half, but there was definitely a time where my mind had a lot of energy and I wasn't able to sit. It was kind of like the last thing I was thinking of is actually to be able to sit down and actually meditate because my mind was too active. And it was kind of the last thing the mind wanted to do is just to be still in one spot. So I used to walk and do walking meditation to kind of get the energy out. And sometimes that's all I would do is walking, but other times I would switch from walking into seated or lying or standing in order to, to meditate. But with these four positions, you have all the positions you need and you can just figure out how they work best. Like the reason why I know what works and what doesn't in terms of what time of day to meditate is because I've tried all different times of day. The reason why I know these four positions and how I use them and how I prefer to use them is because I've tried them in so many different ways, so many different situations. You have to experience it so that you can see for yourself. I can tell you how I use meditation and you can try that and see if it works for you. But ultimately, you are your own practice. You're your own independent practice. You may find uses for these different positions that work better for you or worse for you than what I did. It may be a little bit different. And that's where not everyone's practice is going to be exactly the same. Your teacher is here to kind of guide you and kind of share some guidance based on my practice and what I do. But you've got to experience it for yourself so that you can see how these various things either work or don't work for you and then employ whatever tactics you need whatever positions you need at any given time that you need great thanks a lot david we have no more questions okay well i will just end by saying thank you all so very much for joining for this session to learn the buddhist teachings i would like to encourage you not only to meditate you know meditate once a day and hopefully twice a day maybe even as much as three times a day or more if you have the time. But also what I really would like to encourage you to do over the next few days and few weeks is focus on right speech. We covered that in some of our previous talks and we went into it pretty good detail today. So this is an ideal time for you to really work on refining your speech, not just your spoken language, but your text messages, your emails, your posts on Facebook, you're commenting all of this stuff because all of this hostility that is in our society, it only gets better if there's people like us that are learning and practicing these teachings well. And other people can notice 
when they're around somebody that's practicing right speech. They might not know anything about the Buddhist teachings. They might not know even who the Buddha is. They might not even know how to spell Buddha. But when you're in relationships, either professional or personal, and you speak with right speech using the five factors of well-spoken speech, you will see that your relationships will blossom. You will have better interactions on a personal level and you'll have better interactions on a professional level. And it's only when people like you and I decide to actively train the mind and look at the mind honestly, when you have conversations that go really well, look at those five factors and see, yeah, I was practicing those. I maybe could have done that one a little bit better, but yeah, I, I actually got them all down. That's why it went really well. Or if a conversation doesn't go very well, be honest with yourself and see which factors you weren't practicing closely and let that be a reminder to you to improve it for the next time. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel shameful. Don't feel like you've made a mistake or you've broken a rule or any kind of silly stuff like that. Just take note of it. Be honest with the mind. Look at areas for improvement. And then next time, just aim to do better and aim to do better and aim to do better. And each day, just get better and better at your speech with your children, with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, even with just cashiers at a restaurant or a waiter or waitress or any of these kind of things. So really work on right speech. And this will be so rewarding for you to see that you can actively speak with people in a very loving and kind way and you will see how your relationships really start to turn it's going to take more than just a day or two right it's going to take many weeks many months of practicing this but you will see your relationships will really evolve and you will find the words right some of the questions at the beginning of this session were david what would you do in this situation or what would you do in that situation well i can give you those examples but the beauty with the Gautama Buddha's teachings about the five factors of well-spoken speech is if you practice these, you will find the right words and your words will be different than mine. And in each situation, they'll be a little bit different. But when you get in the habit of doing this, you will kind of almost have this way of being. This is, is the, the wisdom of the Buddhist teaching soaking into the mind. The more you train the mind, the more you practice it, this wisdom just soaks and soaks and soaks into the mind. And you will see certain word choices that you use in certain situations will work really well. And in other situations, they won't work very well. And by you looking at that and being honest with yourself, you will gain the wisdom of what's working well and what's not working really well. And that wisdom of how to speak in these various situations will train the mind to be better and better and better. And this is where each month, each week, each day, you will see that life just continually improves. And as you speak this way, people will generally start speaking this way with you as well. And you will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you're speaking very politely, very respectfully, in a very wholesome way. And then people will speak that way with you. Okay? So work on your meditation practice and work on right speech. And remember, right speech comes from right intention, practicing harmlessness, non-ill will. And if you can work on that over the next 
few weeks and few months, you're just gonna see lots and lots and lots of improvement. So thank you so much for joining. We're gonna start again on Sunday at nine o'clock, Thai time, where we're going to be diving into the cycle of rebirth, discussing how the mind moves from animal existence into the human existence and how our mind evolves out of this animal consciousness. So I'll see you on Sunday at nine o'clock. Thank you so much for joining and we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.